Welcome to the Dive Podcast presented by Willamette Week. I'm your host, Hank Sanders. Each week, we tackle a different issue that's uniquely Portland. So tune in every Saturday to hear a new episode complete with interviews and editorial that helps explain our city. From Portland's leading paper comes a brand new way to engage with the news, sports, arts, and culture. Stick around. Welcome to the Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Hank Sanders. It's great to have you with us on this June 26th. Not only is it June 26th, but it's also episode 26 of the Dive Podcast. Now, why is that number important? Well, it's important because it means we're six months of the way through the uh, the first year of this podcast. So we're just getting started. So I just want to take the time and, and just say thank you so much for listening. Thank you for following. Thank you for reading uh, the things that Willamette Week writes every single day and every single week. We really appreciate it. It means a lot to us. Now that we've gotten that sappy stuff out of the way, I hope you're having a great weekend. I hope you're staying safe, staying out of the warm weather that we are supposed to be having. Of course, we take these things a couple days before uh, they get released, but uh, but we're expecting 100 plus degrees uh, all weekend. So, you know, drink water, stay safe, do what you got to do. You know the drill. Folks, if you haven't been following this podcast for a few weeks now, you may not know that we are in the middle of a 10-week series where we are interviewing movers and shakers in Portland and Oregon. We kicked it off by talking to Mayor Ted Wheeler, and then we spoke to City Commissioner Mingus Maps. And now we're talking to Multnomah County Health Officer Dr. Jennifer Vines. Now, what does a county health officer do? Well, Dr. Vines described her role as being like the doctor for the entire county. She's asked to make medical decisions for the entire county and everyone that lives here. She's had her fingerprints all over the county's pandemic response and work against the fentanyl crisis and pretty much every other public health crisis and public health threat. So because of the importance of her role and the topical nature of her role with the COVID-19 pandemic taking up so much of people's time and, and thought and, and, and news cycle, we thought that it would be really important to talk to her about her experiences of this past year and her work. So without further ado, let's listen to our interview with Dr. Jennifer Vines. Let's go back to the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020, whenever it is, when you started looking at what was going on and you started thinking, oh, this, you know, SARS COVID-2 thing is really going to be, this is going to take up my, my time for the next 12 months. When would, take us back to that day. When was that day and what happened? I can't remember an exact date, but the, the pace was pretty intense. So I can recall that around the holidays, I, you know, I was tracking public health headlines out of China, out of Wuhan, um, by January, those, you know, we were starting to create frameworks and having, you know, public health exercises about, okay, what if, you know, what if this lands here? And, you know, at the time we thought that we were looking for sick travelers, um, and so things really turned on their heads when we started discovering community-based cases. That meant we were discovering the virus in people who had not traveled and then started discovering cases uh, among people who really had few symptoms. So that turned everything on its head. And we had been watching other places, Northern Italy comes to mind in particular as having this incredible overrun of their hospitals that was just deeply traumatic for everyone involved. And so I would say, I, you know, it was, it was early March after we had our first case locally, and it became apparent to me, I think, you know, part of my job was bringing the public along, but it became apparent to me that we were in a global pandemic, 
um, that we did not have a vaccine and that we were looking at things like closing down schools and businesses, which for my for people in my generation of public health and for most of us, th th those are things that we read about in textbooks as far as public health strategies. And suddenly within a matter of weeks, we found ourselves um, actually contemplating using them and then putting them into place. Yeah. And you said something there that's really interesting. You said one of your jobs, obviously, is to inform the public on what's going on. And as somebody who's both parent, both my parents are doctors, um, I can say this, that, that, you know, doctors might not have the best techniques, I haven't been taught the best techniques to like, you know, how to translate science for the layman person. They don't teach you in medical school how to, uh, you know, advise the governor on how to talk about these topics. So what was that like for you of like, oh, yeah, I understand it because I went to medical school, but now I need to tell people who have maybe not gone to college at all or definitely didn't go to med medical school what's going on? Sure, that's, that's a great question. I think um, I was actually drawn to public health because of um, the narrative component. I've um, Many of my mentor health officers were particularly skilled and some of the advice early on I got from my mentors um, were specifically, you know, that my job was to, was to situate, you know, where we are in this narrative and what's going on. Um, and so I was clued into that uh, um, early on, again, th just thanks to the wisdom of people, other people that I've worked with. So I try really hard to, to plain talk everything I do, no matter my audience. I think it's a way of showing respect for everybody um, if they can track what you're saying. And I think I, 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 I listen to other people speak and I think that um, finding good metaphors, finding good storytelling um, really helps bring people along in terms of uh, conveying and information and, and getting them on board with you as a partner. Yeah, there has been a lot written about whether it's Oregon or other cities or states about the language, because my parents had guessed that we were not going to go back to college and even, you know, in person, even though, you know, we were being told it's just two weeks and then you should be able to go back. But doctors had a sense of that. Was there a sense that, okay, we know what's going on, but we can't like get people too scared? Or why was the choice to kind of hold back on, on, what, on what was about to come? That's a fair question. I'm trying to dial back to that time. I think I just remember a process of bringing people along and conveying the gravity of the situation that we were in. And so I think rather than you know, slamming people with this idea of like, okay, schools are going to close now for months and we're in it. Um, as I remember, spring break was coming up. And so, you know, those conversations were framed as, you know, kids are going to be out anyway. Let's extend that by a week. And remember last spring, a lot of those restrictions and a lot of those interventions were buying time. They were buying time to learn about the virus. It was buying time um, to get scarce personal protective equipment back online. Um, and so that there was a sense of probably incrementalism now in hindsight, um, but I think that was necessary to, to again, to, to bring people along and give them a chance to start to wrap their heads around the situation that we were facing. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the hesitancy that we've seen to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And let's take out the group of people that think that there's like microchips in it. it you know, that's not that interesting of a conversation. But what I do think is interesting is the, the, the 
some people say inconsistent rhetoric of what we should be doing. For example, you're watching a football game and due to COVID protocols, you can't shake hands anymore, but then you go on and play 60 minutes of full contact football. People go, oh, so it's just like, like it doesn't make sense. So then if doctors orders don't really make sense, then why should I be getting the vaccine? So what do you say to those people? I acknowledge that, that they're right. I mean, this has been a year. I, I feel like I've, use so much of my own personal brain power trying to reconcile contradictions. Um, the response has been imperfect. The guidance is limited and, you know, people use different interpretations. So you end up with a scenario like you've just described. And I think it does erode trust. Um, we're doing the best we can with what we have. And in particular, when you have a system of 50 states sort of left to their own devices to, you know, to decide how this is going to go, um, you, you do end up with these conflicting approaches um, that really don't help anybody. So setting that aside, um, I try to come back to what we do know um, and the very essentials and the very basics of what we know works. So for a long time, masking, masking indoors um, is really important. And now vaccine. Um, so I'm happy to talk about what we know about these vaccines, what we don't. But for the most part, the Pfizer and Moderna are proving themselves to have an excellent track record in adults as far as safety um, and protection and increasingly um, that you're less likely to, to transmit the virus to someone else if you've been vaccinated. Um, Johnson & Johnson has a slightly different profile, but still a, a worthy vaccine. Um, and remember, we were hoping for vaccines that were like 70% effective. Right. And we got ones that were 85, you know, 95. I mean, that is a stunning success and a stunning timeline to move them through the regulatory process and have them ready to ship. Um, that is, I, I, it's, we sort of take for granted now that, oh, we have these vaccines, but that was a, just an incredible win. CDC comes out, says we don't have to wear masks indoors if we're vaccinated. States have said, okay, on this date, we'll change that. My whole thing has been like, the CDC doesn't really tell me if I need to wear a mask. Society kind of does. Like if, you know, I'm not going to be the one person in a grocery store without a mask, people looking at me weird. And I'm going to be like, no, it's okay. I'm vaccinated. The CDC said I can. When do you think we'll see society saying, okay, no, let's, uh, if you're unvaccinated, let's, let's not wear masks anymore. That's a great point. If I could if I could sort of unpack your what, what, what you're saying, because I think it's really important. So it's great for CDC to say, if you're fully vaccinated, you know, meaning you're, you're two weeks out from your single dose of Johnson & Johnson, or you're two weeks out from your second dose of Pfizer or Moderna, um, they're right. You're, you're, you're very well protected against disease yourself, and you're probably very unlikely to pass the virus to someone else. So do you need a mask? No, that's you as an individual. The policy and the enforcement piece, this society piece that you're referring to is, is a different story, right? So that's where the devil is in the details. Um, so we saw the Oregon governor embrace the CDC guidance um, and she opted to put it on businesses to figure out how to verify vaccine status. Um, and, you know, we're hearing now that that's, that's fairly difficult. So right. I think, um, I think to your question, you know, when, when, when can we all just ditch the masks there is probably some point, I'm not sure I've had a chance to really think about it, but I think there will be some level of vaccine coverage and some quieting down of COVID cases and COVID hospitalizations where I think that would be, that would be a strong possibility. Yeah. And obviously you're not, you're not the press secretary for the governor, but you know, with the, I, the, 
I, I read that announcement where we're putting on businesses to uh, to verify. And but how can we possibly, you know, uh, expect that uh, that your local taco store is going to have a great way to verify if you're vaccinated or not? Yeah, again, I don't I don't speak for the governor. Right. I think the state the state has um, done their best to offer, you know, the basics of how you know how to check that someone is fully vaccinated. And they've also offered a default of, you know, just continue to ask everyone to wear a mask. Um, and so I've spent the last couple of days just telling people, you know, it's never wrong to wear a mask, whether you're vaccinated or not. Um, so I, you know, this is a, um, a temporary state uh, of affairs, according to what the governor said today. Um, so she's hoping to uh, bridge to a 70% level of protection statewide. And I think she indicated that at that point, we would no longer be in this um, sort of checking phase, but that uh, conceivably, uh, we could all go without masks. Yeah. Um, and then the last question on COVID, because I want to get to some other topics, but uh, the governor, uh, the president came out and said that for health, for um privacy reasons and you just felt like oversight reasons he wasn't going to have like a federally mandated passport system do you think that that was a mistake i think what we call vaccine passports um uh, it it triggers a lot of emotions for people in terms of equity and the idea of creating um sort of first class and second class citizens so we know that there are people who have yet to have a chance to be vaccinated. We know that there are people who are hesitating to be vaccinated, who need the right information in the right way at the right time. So I think this idea that, oh, you, you know, your passport gets you into a certain um, certain way, you know, certain way of life or, you know, access to certain activities. Whereas if you don't have that, you're at a disadvantage. I think people intuitively reject that as sort of structurally unfair. Um, it's hard for me to explain the difference between that and asking businesses to verify your vaccine status. Um, but again, that's been framed as a temporary option with a fallback of just continuing mask use for everyone else. So people continue to have access to all the same services. It's just a question of whether they're willing to continue to wear a mask or produce their COVID-19 vaccine record. Yeah. And then that reminds me one last question before I move on. Um, in five years, in the next five years, how much will COVID be a part of our life? Can we expect a COVID booster every 12 months or, you know, what, what's this going to be like? Yeah, I okay, so looking in my crystal ball, I think five years, the outlook is pretty good. I think five years from now, I'm going to guess that COVID-19 is sort of still around, um, but kind of in, in, in the background. Um, what happens between now and then, I suspect COVID-19 is gonna to continue to ebb and flow. I think we're gonna be uh, watching the variants really closely. I think vaccine manufacturers are already getting approvals to update and adapt uh, the vaccines that we have. Um, so I, 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 I don't know that COVID is gonna control our lives for the next year the way it has this past year, but I suspect we're still going to be feeling it, especially as we head into this fall and winter, which is the you know the traditional res respiratory season when people head indoors. Could you see another full shutdown coming in the next year or two? Good question. Hard for me to imagine a full shutdown, given what we know now, which is that masks work, vaccines work. Um, so I think we would have to have a pretty um, a pretty fast pretty serious um, 
global development around COVID-19 to find ourselves back in that position. Awesome. Okay, let's now move on to a topic that you've worked on a lot. Obviously, I'm sure the last 12 months have been pretty much just COVID, but let's talk about fentanyl. What is fentanyl? Yeah, so fentanyl, we call it a synthetic opioid, which means it's a it's a man-made, laboratory-made um, uh, opioid. So it puts it in the class of medicines along with morphine. And what people need to know is that it's very, very potent. So dose, routine medical doses of fentanyl are measured in micrograms, and that is compared to doses of morphine, which is measured in milligrams. So it's um, that's how we, you know, you hear talking points about. Um, just a couple, you know, a couple grains of salt's worth of fentanyl can be a lot and can be enough to overdose. Yeah, and why is it uh, running rampant on our streets? Why? What makes it uh, easy to get? Yeah, so it turns out that fentanyl has been showing up um, here and there, uh, both predictably and unpredictably. So it's been consistently found in counterfeit pills that are being sold on the streets, um, often people thinking they're buying Oxycontin, which is another form of painkiller, or Xanax, which is um, a calming medicine. Uh, and it turns out there are varying amounts of fentanyl in these counterfeit pills. Um, the pills look really credible. They, they look like something you would get from a pharmacy, um, but they can contain different amounts of fentanyl, some of which are high enough to actually uh, be a lethal overdose. Is it like um, people say, at least in TV shows, that like you cut a drug with like baking powder to like make it, you can still feel the high if you're a buyer, but uh, it's cheaper to manufacture. Is it like that people are putting fentanyl in these drugs or in these pills so that you still feel like you are uh, getting, you know, the pain relief or the rush that you would get from whatever drug they want to buy, but it's just cheaper because you can put so much less in? That's a good question. I don't, I don't have a read on that. Um, you know, we do hear, so our Multnomah County harm reduction providers, you know, who, who interact with people who use drugs, a lot of people already know that pills on the street contain fentanyl. Um, some people who are seeking an opiate high don't like fentanyl. So that's why a lot of our messaging has been trying to target people who, who, who don't see themselves as um, you know, using drugs or abusing drugs, but maybe popping pills um, for fun or to take the edge off, not, not realizing that they contain this very potent opiate. Yeah. And what do you think has to be done to try to, uh, to curb this? I wish I had a really a, a solid answer for that. You know, we went public with this information um, we looked hard at our data around uh, people who had had fatal overdoses related to fentanyl, and we couldn't really find a pattern. We, wow. You know, we look for age, we look for demographics, um, geography. You know, we we really try because in public health, our first choice is always to try to figure out who's you know who's at risk, and then really target the prevention messages to that group. And we really couldn't in this case, um, so we had to go broad with a message basically that. If you are using any pill that you haven't gotten from a pharmacy, you need to know that you're at risk of fentanyl overdose. And that's that's looking at everything. That's looking at fatal overdoses. That's looking at uh, drug seizures and just the sheer number of pills um, that are that are rolling into our region that are found to contain fentanyl.
folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dive Podcast. Come back next week for another super special guest. Not just a special guest, a super special guest. So uh, TBD, uh, we will announce that obviously when the episode itself comes out. But please set your alerts. Make sure you come back on Saturday or Sunday to come listen to this podcast. I'll be here, same place, same time. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week. For more information on this podcast or the biggest stories in Portland, go to wweek.com and follow Willamette Week on all socials. We're doing some really cool things related to the podcast on our Instagram and Twitter. It includes giveaways, behind the scenes, etc. A lot of cool things coming your way, so give those a follow. Special thanks to our guests for joining us, and thank you to Aaron Mesh, Mark Zussman, and Brian Panganibon, as well as the entire Willamette week family last but not least thank you so much to heather witty and ampmusic.co for the music that you hear on this podcast for willamette week i'm hank sanders this has been the dive podcast Music